Good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's word together, so I hope you've got a Bible with you and you can open it up to the book of Psalms, chapter 32. So if you're new here, uh, one of the things that we're doing is we're walking through a number of Psalms. Um, and I opened up this series last week by trying to talk about how your emotions matter to God. And we did a kind of big flyover of the Bible to say, in what sense do we know that our emotions matter to God? And one of the things that we looked at last week, I think it was point number three, was that um, our emotions matter to God because in the devotional framework of our relationship with God, he's designed for us to have a means of coming before him with everything that we feel, with everything that we think, with everything that's going on in our lives. So in the New Testament, for example, uh, God says to us, cast all your anxieties on me, all your cares on me, knowing that I care for you. And so we saw last week that God gives us in the book of Psalms a language for every season of the soul. So what do we do when we're afraid? He gives us language in the Psalms and says, pray your fears to me. What, what do we do when we're sad, when we're suffering? He says, pray your tears to me. Here, I'll give you this psalm and this psalm and this psalm. Well, what do we do when we feel guilty? What do we, what do, we do when we feel we've done wrong? And that's what Psalm 32 is here to answer. God has given us a language for this season of the soul and this reality. And here it is, Psalm 32 of David, so written by David, a mascal, it says. And here's how it reads. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then... I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. And then David speaks, and this is God's voice coming through his word in verse eight. I, God, will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So I think guilt is complicated because we don't always know what to do with guilt. On the one hand, we have a culture that seems to be saying to us that we should never feel guilty that the only sin that you can commit is a sin against yourself and the only real sin you can commit against yourself is to not be true to yourself and, and the good news is you can forgive yourself when you are not true to yourself, which is kind of this, this spiral, right? So you should never feel guilty. If you're healthy, you won't feel guilty because all you've done is sin against yourself. So that's, that's one language, the kind of sorry, not sorry. It can become a banner for this, a sort of brazen, I'm not sorry about it, I do what I need to do. I pursue my own happiness. So if it were only that, 
that would be one thing, but there's more because there are stories all throughout the news these days about churches, church leaders, Christian organizations that use guilt to twist people in the wind, that use guilt to manipulate people into doing things God never told them to do, that God never would even endorse, and yet people start to feel isolated by churches or leaders. They start to feel like they're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. So there's that aspect, right? And then there's something that can be even more subtle than that. It can be churches that even unintentionally um, put sort of God's law and God's commands in all caps and large font and put God's grace and God's promises in small font. And what ends up happening is Christians leave their small group or Christians leave the gathered worship and they're more convinced of God's law and his commands than they are of his grace and assurance of salvation through Jesus. Right, so you can see the way that guilt starts to do a number on the lives of people and Christians. That's to say nothing of the need to define terms like guilt and define distinctions between guilt and shame, for example, because biblically speaking, if you're talking to somebody who struggles with guilt or you're talking to somebody who struggles with shame, you're not necessarily gonna say the same thing to both of those individuals. Those are two different things, and that's to say nothing of misplaced guilt, false guilt, a misinformed conscience, all those kinds of things, right? So guilt is really complicated. We're not even always sure what to do with it, Psalm 32 doesn't answer all of that. It doesn't provide the nuances for all of those things. Psalm 32 does have a presenting issue. And the presenting issue in Psalm 32 is something we might call objective guilt. Objective guilt is something every Christian struggles with. Every Christian experiences objective guilt because there's always gonna be a gap between the obedience we want to render to the Lord and what we actually pull off on any given day. There's always gonna be a gap there and in that gap is an experience of objective guilt. We have fallen short. There are things we should have done that we didn't do. There are things that we should not have done that we did do and in that gap there's something called guilt and what happens is the enemy goes to work on that guilt and what does he wanna do? He wants to drag you from that objective guilt into despair. He wants to drag you from objective guilt into indifference where you, just, you and I just sort of say, why do I even try? Right? There's no way to get free from this low-grade fever of guilt. Right? In both of those situations, what the enemy ends up doing is robbing us of the joy of forgiveness, which is Psalm 32's best gift. That's why David writes this psalm. It is not really so much fixated on guilt as it is fixated and enthralled with the joy of forgiveness. So I said in conclusion last week that um, my hope and my prayer is that we're walking through psalm after psalm and feeling after feeling and that on our way through this study for the next handful of weeks, we're going to, by God's grace, learn to cultivate three instincts. And really, we're gonna frame our study this morning from Psalm 32 around those three instincts. The first impulse or instinct we wanna cultivate is we run to God. What do we do with our guilt? We run to God with our guilt. Right, right there next to the chapter number, you see who wrote it, of David, and you see that it's a maskil. We'll come back and talk about what maskil probably means later on, but you see it of David is the word. So this is written by David, that is the Old Testament king. He was a famous king and he was a king who sinned famously. So he didn't just sin once, he sinned a number of times, but there was one in particular, 
series, an episode over his life that was especially dark. He lusted after a woman who was not his wife, it was somebody else's wife. He sends his guard over there to take her. They don't go asking, they go telling. And so she comes, he takes her into his chambers and he sleeps with her and he impregnates her. And then now at this particular moment, he's got to figure out how to cover this up, how to conceal this. And he goes through every length humanly possible to make sure that this never comes to the light. And in the process of it, he realizes he's out of options and he ends up bumping off her husband, Uriah, by having him killed on the field of battle. And in the midst of that, he's still in this really dark place. And in God's grace, a very courageous man named Nathan, who's a prophet, Nathan comes up to David and says, you've done something terribly wrong and you've never owned it, but you need to own it. And he says, you're the man and you've done this terrible, this committed this awful sin. And the, the amazing thing is light comes pouring into the room and God in his grace softens the hard, calloused, self-justifying heart of King David, and he just melts. And the reason you know he melts is if you've ever read Psalm 51. If you haven't read it, go read it later on, because that's what he wrote right after God brought him to a point of repentance, and David just cries out, and he says, God, if you judge me, you've done nothing wrong if you just wipe me out. Here's what I'm begging for. I don't deserve it, but I'm begging for mercy. And he's, there's this beautiful display of true repentance in Psalm 51. There's true brokenness. He said, you desire truth in the inward part. My sin is always before me. I can't rub it out. Would you blot out my transgressions? And he says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. I will be whiter than snow. He's not asking for a great attorney. He's asking for a pure heart. You can tell this man is broken about his sin. Interestingly, in that Psalm, in Psalm 51, at the end of his prayer to God, he makes a vow. In Psalm 51, verse 13, and he says, God, if you, if you do this thing I'm asking you to do, which I don't deserve, but if you do this thing that I'm asking you to do, here's what I promise. I'll tell people what I've learned. I will, his words, I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. And if you're asking, where did King David keep the vow that he made in Psalm 51, verse 13? The answer is Psalm 32. It is a mascal. Mascal means it's a didactic psalm. It means it is a psalm that is built to tell a story that instructs. David said in Psalm 51, I will instruct sinners in the way. I will instruct the rebellious. And here he is, a mascal. He's singing a song that instructs the people of God not to rebel. And how does he do it? He situates in this very song of Israel the story of his own rebellion. You see in verse three? Here's what happened. He says, when I kept silent, that is when I didn't confess my sin, I doubled down. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. What comes through here is this truth. Conviction is a gift. Conviction is a gift. I wonder how many people in this room have a story where you went through a season of your life as a Christian where you tried to suppress the truth and you tried really hard. You weren't falling in, you were diving in. 
and you were making reasons for why it was gonna be satisfying to you and you're suppressing the truth and you're becoming more and more hardened to God and hardened and insensitive to his word. And, and David says, I tried that. And my silence of suppressing the truth and concealing my sin, it was breaking stuff on the inside of my life. It was deeply painful experience because I was trying to conceal something rather than confess it. I wonder how many of us have ever experienced this kind of feeling that he describes where he talks about this regret that's so deep you can feel it in your bones. He says, my, my bones ached. The longer this season went, he talks about how, you see those words, the hand of God was heavy upon me. That's, that's a word that Christians have often called conviction, conviction of sin. The, the Holy Spirit's described as having a few main jobs and one of them is he will convict the world of sin. He does that in the lives of believers, right? So that when we are hardened and when we are turning our backs away from God and away from the flourishing that comes when we live in, with the grain of his design, when we turn our back to that, the Holy Spirit says, I gotta call you on that because that's not leading you good places. Those words, that pattern, that attitude, that's got to go. That is not who you are anymore. And it's conviction. And David said, it felt so heavy upon me. When God convicts us of our sin, he is giving us something that the New Testament calls the gift of repentance. And what do you do when somebody gives you a gift? You open it. Well, then the question is, how do you open? If God gives you the gift of repentance, how do you open it? I would suggest to you, you open it in the very same way David opens it in verse five. Look at verse five. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. That's David unwrapping the gift of repentance so that he can benefit from the convicting work of God in his life. You, th you think about it, we don't just repent once. That's why Martin Luther had to write the 95 Thesis and nail it to the castle door at Wittenberg, where the very first statement that he made of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church trying to earn and merit salvation, is he said, repentance is not just a one-time thing, it's a whole life for the Christian. That was his very first proposition in the Protestant Reformation. You don't just repent once, repentance is a lifestyle. How do you see that? How do you see repentance as a lifestyle? Well, a couple different ways. We could look at a number of verses and passages in the Bible. For example, Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about how you run. It's using the metaphor of running the race that is set before us. And how do you run? What are the two legs on which the Christian race is run? You run one leg repentance and the other leg is faith. One leg is you're, you're running by laying aside the writer of the Hebrews says, every weight and sin which so easily entangles us, so there's repentance, and you run by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So we run by repenting and we run by trusting in Christ. And we don't just do that once, we do it daily repenting. Because sin grabs us by the ankles, right? It wants to trip us and throw us down. It easily entangles us and wraps us up and we are constantly laying aside. That's, that's the picture here. Think about Jesus and the daily repentance he calls us to when he taught his disciples to pray. They say, how do you do this? How do you do this thing called prayer? And he says, here's how you do it. And he leads them in what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, you know that they include requests, things that you need every day. What do you need every day? Jesus says, 
Every day you need bread, so say to the Lord, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What is Jesus saying? He's gonna, he says, every day you need to eat and God is the one to provide the bread. Every day you're gonna sin and God is the one who forgives. So there's this built-in habit of the heart that Jesus wove into his teaching about prayer where he says, every day you're gonna fall short and every day God's gonna be ready to forgive. Every day I wanna give you a place to take your guilt. You don't repent once. You think about it by way of analogy. You don't repent once because you don't, you don't take the garbage out once, right? You think about it. If you only take the garbage out once, what's your house gonna smell like? Garbage, right? The same thing is true. If we don't repent, house is gonna smell like garbage. Garbage starts piling up because we're not taking it out. We're not saying, this is going. By the grace of God, it's going. It might come back tomorrow. I'm not, I'm not aiming in that direction, but if it comes back tomorrow, it's gonna go again tomorrow. I'm gonna take out the trash again tomorrow. It's a life of repentance. Author Bob Bevington, he tells his story in, in a book. He tells his story together with his pastor who became a close friend of his named Joe Coffey. And Bevington tells the story of how he really wrecked his own life. He, here's, how, here's what he writes. My career as an optometrist had taken off. Plus, I had become an entrepreneur on the side. For the 16 years I was married to Rita, she remained faithful to me and to the Lord, while my relationship with the Lord basically just spiraled downward. By my 40th birthday, although I had grown wealthy in the material sense, I had become spiritually bankrupt. And without even knowing it, I had lit the fuse on a 500 megaton cluster bomb that eventually went off in an explosion of adultery and divorce that would wreak immeasurable havoc in a dozen lives. You see how even now he's not minimizing what happened back there. I will tell a lot more about that as these chapters unfold. 15 years have passed since that bomb went off. As I look back, I'm amazed that God did not give up on me. Instead, he started sending people across my path to explain how the gospel works for sinners like me, about how grace emanates from the cross. And he gradually enabled me to see glimpses of the glorious person of Jesus, who he is and what he did. That caused something to happen deep in my soul. Call it wonder, call it awe, call it gratitude, call it a confrontation with grace. And what I love is as you keep reading through the book, you pick up on two things. One, Bob Bevington is done hiding and concealing his sin. And two, he's done hiding and concealing his sin because he has found in Jesus a God who forgives. He has found the joy of living out there in the light. Right, this psalm, again, it is not immersed in David's guilt. It is enthralled with divine grace. We read it rightly when we see that that is the emphasis, right? So I read these verses earlier, and I probably didn't read it with the amount of feeling it should have had. I think verse five, look down at verse five. David's telling his story, it probably sounds like this. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's like you're eavesdropping on David, and he's saying to the Lord, you went and just forgave it all? Who does that? He is... He is amazed, he is beside himself. What kind of God does this? So we run to God, second, we remember the gospel. 
we remember the gospel. David is not yawning his way through worship and if he sees you yawning, he's here to wake you up. Right, he is not having it. Uh, his brothers and sisters yawning their way through worship when, when such a glorious redemption is ours. And, and he really, in a way, it's like he delivers all the goods up front Rather than telling the actual story of his sin and brokenness leading to the joy, he has to put the joy up front, right? He just can't contain himself. My, um, when I grew up, um, I would play with my older brother and we would play certain games, usually involving basketball or baseball or whatever. And then I would play other games. When I was really young, I played a lot of games with my younger cousin, Stephanie. She was like a sister to me and she was just a little bit younger than me. And so my Aunt Becky would come over and her and my mom would be talking and whatever. And, Stephanie and I would be playing. Well, I remember, I knew what Stephanie wanted for birthdays and Christmas, always knew the stuff she was interested in. And one day, I don't remember if Stephanie was at the house or not, but I was, I was in the back of our house. I was in my mom and dad's closet. I don't know what I was looking for in there, but I found something I probably shouldn't have found. And it was, um, there, was there were blankets in the corner of the closet and underneath the blanket, just peeking out, looked like a box that maybe had a toy in it. And I lifted that blanket and there were all kinds of toys underneath that blanket. It was a, uh, it was a dawning moment uh, there in the, in the master closet of our house. And one of the first things that I noticed is that one particular toy was definitely one that I knew my cousin wanted. And so what was I gonna do? I mean, now I knew a secret. And so the next time I saw Stephanie, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is the Alvin doll, Alvin the chipmunk, it's in my parents' closet. Right, I mean, just right out with it, right? I wasn't necessarily, I, I don't think when I walked up to her, I was planning to just give away the store, but that is exactly what happened. I walked up and I had this secret. It was just too much to hold onto it. I had seen it. It's literally in my house. There's a blanket back there. I could show it to you right now, right? It's just so hard to hold onto it. It's kind of like that's what David is doing in Psalm 32. He's like, look, I'm gonna need to get to the story of my sin and confession and forgiveness and joy, but I just need to tell you, up front, I've been forgiven. Like, who knew this is how things were gonna turn out, but I have the joy of having been forgiven. Now let me back up and tell you why I needed it. And then verse three, he backs up and actually walks you through the whole story of the darkness and brokenness that led to the amazing grace of forgiveness. Here's the truth for us. There is no greater blessing than what is promised in the gospel. Don't we sing this, right, in some of our favorite hymns? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? The whole, right? That has been animating the joy-filled worship of God's people for centuries, right? Well, so in this psalm, the good news is delivered in such a beautiful way. So, so there are a couple of songs. We're, we're 32 chapters in. And so far, there have been only two psalms that begin with exactly the same language. Both of these psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 32, start with these words. How blessed or joyful or happy is the one who. Both psalms begin that way. How blessed, joyful, and happy is the one who, in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 32. The interesting thing is these two psalms 
talk about a person who has joy and experiences joy in completely different sets of circumstances. So Psalm 1 is how blessed, how happy, how joyful is the one who walks in God's ways. And then you come over to Psalm 32 and it says how happy and blessed and joyful are the ones who haven't who haven't walked in God's ways, but who have been forgiven of their sins, whose sins have been covered, their transgressions are gone, and God is not imputing to them the iniquity and the punishment that they deserve. They are promising happiness. This is gospel promise here in this psalm. And it's given on the basis, Old Testament, right? They had the the sacrificial system was a tutorial device pointing forward to the Messiah who would come. It was a teaching device built into the fabric of the life of Israel so that you would transfer your sins, the sins of the people, to an innocent lamb, right? And that innocent lamb was was a symbolic representation that God's just punishment would be poured out and taken by an innocent representative in the place of the sinful people. And all of that was pointing forward to the one who would come in the future, Jesus Christ. And you see that, right? Because when Jesus Christ shows up in the pages of the New Testament, John the Baptist sees him coming down to the River Jordan, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I need to introduce you to this one who is coming to the Jordan River. Let me tell you who he is. Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. He's here because guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God. Was he full atonement? Can it be? You sense the hymn writer just this wonder. Are you serious? Full atonement? It's the great exchange. It's the glory of the gospel. David talks about the floodwaters rising up, but they don't reach us. You see that? When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You think about the sense in which the wooden cross of Jesus on the hill called Calvary became to his people something like Noah's ark. And we... We hide in that cross and we are saved from the waters of the flood. The waters of God's judgment cannot reach us because we're hidden in the cross, right? What does David say? He says, you are my hiding place. The one from whom we needed to hide has become to us a hiding place. That's a gospel, That's the glory of Jesus. The God we hide from can become our hiding place. Friend, where do you go with your guilt? What do you say to God when you know you've blown it? What's the vocabulary? What's the language for the season of the soul when sin has gotten the upper hand? That's Psalm 32. You say, I acknowledged it, I confessed it, and you forgave. I'm done hiding, why would I hide when you forgive? We run to God, we remember the gospel. Third, we help each other. We help each other. David had made that vow. I will teach sinners your way. I will teach the rebellious your way. And that's exactly what he does in this psalm. He turns to his believing community, his brothers and sisters, and we see three truths emerge here. Number one, humble confession leads to forgiveness. Isn't it interesting? He's not just telling you his story. He's inviting you to experience it as well. He says, verse five, I confessed and God forgave. Look at verse six. 
Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Right, today's the day of salvation. That's David's way of saying, today is the day of salvation. Let the owning up start now. Let the admission and the confession start now so that the joy can start now. The forgiveness can come flooding in because humble confession leads to forgiveness. He is exhorting his brothers and sisters. David is making eye contact with you. He's making eye contact with me. He's saying the one who confesses sin is protected. We have a hiding place. And the one who hides and conceals sin is vulnerable. Right, so right after David is done exhorting though, he turns to praise, you see, right? He says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You, Lord, surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. You just think about the power of Christian testimony for a second with me. You ever sat down with another believer and that believer says, can I tell you what God has done in my life? Can can I tell you what the Lord is doing right now in my life, in my heart? Can I tell you my Christian testimony, my story? We heard from the waters, Isla sharing her testimony. She's starting early. Can I tell you my story? She told it with all of us. And sometimes in the midst of telling that story, it's like, are you talking to me or are you praising God? And the answer here is both. David says, I gotta tell you my story. Look, all of you need to get in on this. And then he turns and he says, God, you've been my hiding place. It's like, is it testimony or is it praise? It's it's both. And then he changes voice again. And now it's God speaking in verse eight. Look at it, I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. That is his fatherly eye, right? I will give you counsel. Don't be like a horse or mule. That's not how I want to do this, right? Without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. So bit and bridle, God has that option, right? If if you and I are continually hitting the self-destruct button in our lives, he has the option to say, I'm going to put this thing right here. I'm going to drag you away from this thing that's going to destroy you. But God says, that's not the way I want this to go. Here's what I want to do. I want to counsel you. I want to talk and I want you to listen because I'm a father who loves you. So take my counsel. Let me guide you with my eye upon you. That's how I want this to go down. I want it to be a blessing, not discipline. That leads us to the next point. Stubborn disobedience leads to a harvest of pain. A harvest of pain. Some, some of us could tell that part of our stories. We could say to one another, yeah, there was a season in my life and I, I sowed sin and I reaped pain. And I'm not proud of it. Confession brings forgiveness and disobedience brings discipline and discipline is not comfortable. But God will do it because he loves us. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross who lives in the Psalms And here's what he says about these verses. He says, what a choice. One can be stubborn, increasing guilty fears, or one can confess sin and find relief and joy through the loyal love of God. What a choice. Living in the light leads to joy and true freedom. To joy and true freedom. Look at the words in verse 10. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord. You see that hard pivot foot that's planted? But, 
the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I love how this psalm begins with joyful is the one and it ends with shout for joy, you upright in heart. You know, there's evidence to suggest that the psalm should not be taken in isolation, that any given psalm, uh, if you will, lives in a neighborhood, a psalmic neighborhood, if you will. So if we look at what neighborhood Psalm 32 is in, you just look next door at Psalm 31, and it says, how great is your goodness stored up for those who fear you. So that's next door to where we are. And then you go one more house down on that side, right, and you got Psalm 30. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you've put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So we've got gladness there. We've got God's steadfast love and goodness right next door. Then you go to the other side of the house on chapter 33, and it opens with rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. And then one door down from there, Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who hides in him, and those who look to you are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame. Where does our psalm live? Our psalm lives on a street called Joy. Our psalm lives on Joy Street because right at the beginning of our psalm it says, joyful is the one who. And at the end of the psalm it says, let the shouting and the rejoicing commence. People with messy stories love Psalm 32. Martin Luther loved Psalm 32. David, the original author, loved him some Psalm 32. Aurelius Augustine, it was his favorite psalm. Aurelius Augustine was a legendary sinner. He wrote a big fat book called The Confessions in which he says, here's all the ways in which I tried, Lord, to shut you out of my life and I did everything I could to rebel against you, to break your heart and to break my praying mama's heart, Monica. And he writes this big book of all his confessions. You know, when Augustine was on his deathbed, he said, could somebody come in and etch some words of scripture on the wall for my comfort in my dying hour? And they said, yes, what words do you want to pick? And he said, Psalm 32. Write this, right there. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let me just look at that on my way out. My sin is covered. How joyful I am. <laughs> Friend, your emotions matter to God. God doesn't want you and me paralyzed by guilt. He wants you shouting for joy. He wants to take you from that place of objective guilt to a place of joy in the gospel. David's closing words when he says, shout and rejoice, you righteous, that's David inviting you to come live on Joy Street. Come with me, come live right here on Joy Street. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart.